0: Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge.
1: And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now.
0: Welcome to another week of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Shelly. Hey, Shelly, we talk a lot about attraction and we don't spend enough time in interviewing and selection. And I think we're brought in the perfect Mm -hmm. guest to have this discussion. So Shelly, you have the honor. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: I do appreciate you letting me have the microphone for this introduction, because this is someone that I have followed, admired, and fangirled over for Let's just say going back to the 2010s, maybe even earlier than that. But I have the pleasure of introducing probably one of the greatest thought leaders in recruitment and selection, and that is Lou Adler, CEO of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems. Lou, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Well, in all the years, I have never, ever been speechless. But I think, Shelly, you might have just taken the cake with that one. I don't know what to say. So <laughs> and if I'm you not mistaken, podcast too, I so. think
1: you're blushing. <laughs> I know. Oh, Lou, seriously, I know we were talking in the green room that I had an opportunity to meet you. I was at a LinkedIn conference in the early 2010s. As I said, with my big drum roll here to introduce you onto the show, I'm assuming everybody knows who you are, but for those maybe younger, <laughs> I don't know, or about 99.9 percent yeah. so- of the population. In
2: me anyway. <laughs>
1: That's not true. That's not true, Lou. But would you mind just sharing with our audience a little bit about your journey in the recruitment industry and
2: who you are? I'm happy to do that. The journey is a very unusual one. I quite frankly, as I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I can't wait to become a recruiter. No one yeah. does. <laughs> so I actually grew up wanting to be an engineer and I actually was an engineer and I got into manufacturing and then I got into finance and accounting. And I was actually at a very young age, I was running a manufacturing company and 300 people. I was 32 years old, but I hated the group president, literally hated the group president. He showed up every other week and I was the most miserable person in the world when he showed up and I was depressed for 24 hours. Then I got back and I told his boss that I would turn the company around and I did, but every other week I screwed up something. So I quit four times in one year. Then my boss's boss kept on trying to make me come back. And then I said, nah, I can't deal with this. And at that time I started using recruiters quite extensively. And my wife and I talked about, I said, maybe I'll become a recruiter, but I was only going to do it to get another job. And I said, I'll try it for a year. Then as I got into recruiting, Because my background is manufacturing and process controls. Recruiting actually is a business process, but people in HR don't think it that way. They look at it as a bunch of steps. And I looked at it as no, if you got bad steps, you fix the steps, you don't keep on doing them more efficiently. My approach to recruiting is unusual, more from a manufacturing point of view and a process point of view. And that's how it evolved over many years. But Mm -hmm. that was a perspective, and that's why I'm a little bit unusual person in the recruiting field. That Mm -hmm. should be at least a reasonable answer to your question, Shelley.
1: Well, interesting. And we do ask a lot of our guests how we fell into recruiting is unique, I think, to every person, but you're right.
0: Very few people went to school for it. We've never had anyone on the podcast that has told us that they intended after school to get into recruitment. It looks like.
1: Oh, didn't Dr. Sullivan? Dr. Sullivan said he did. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's right. He's a good friend, but he's weird. weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he has opinions. opinions. What I find really
0: interesting about your journey and where you're at now is you've really taken that engineer approach and really systemize and also productize a performance-based hiring approach. Is it possible to give us really an overview of what is performance-based hiring to you?
2: Well, sure. and I'll actually go back to my first project, my first assignment, which was 1978. That was when I really became a recruiter. And I think this sets the stage because I actually gave a six-month notice, which is weird. And at that time, we had a lot of vendors, and it was an automotive manufacturing company I was in. So I met the CEO, and I said, hey, Mike, I'm going to become a recruiter. And he said, fine, I got a bunch of assignments. The day after I became a recruiter, I went out to his facility, and he gave me a job description that listed skills, experience, and competencies for a plant manager. 10 years of this, engineering background, this and this. And I said, Mike, give me a break. This is not a job description. This is a person description. A job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A person has that. Let's put the person description in the parking lot and tell me what you want the person to do. And he said, I want someone to turn around the plant. I said, fine, let's walk through the plant. So we took an hour, walk through the plant. We found seven or eight things wrong. And I found someone three weeks later who could... Fix all of those things. I don't know how much background he had or educate, but that was not the issue. The issue was what people need to do with what they have, not what they have that makes them successful. And that just opened a pool to everybody. It was the work itself. Now that we refined that over the years, but in that, and probably a thousand to fifteen hundred job descriptions later. In fact, I just did one last week for a chief operating officer for a company selling seed up in Northern California. They said, "No, this is a person description, not a job description. What do you want a person to do?" In this case, it was a company selling seed to all the farmers throughout the world. But I've never used the job description that lists skills, experience, and competencies. It's always, what is the work? And it's always six or seven KPOs, key performance objectives. So that was the first step. The Mm. second, performance-based time. You have to define the work. You want to hire a great person, you offer a great job, not a lateral transfer. The second part was we only found semifinalists. These people who could do that work and would also see the job as a career move. Why would you talk to anybody else other than that. If they could do the work and they were good at it, the hiring manager would see him. And if the candidate saw the job as a career move, high probability they'd accept it. Why would anybody talk to anybody other than those two criteria? Then you had to be a good interviewer. Could Is this person competent and motivated to do that work in this assignment? So I became real good at interviewing. And then I never had enough money in the budget, but as long as the comp was competitive and the job represented a true career move and a person could make 20 30 40 percent more over a year or two that would be, became the decision so that was performance-based hiring work itself semi-finalists great interviewing and closing the deal based on career growth that eventually became performance-based hiring all of those four pieces together as a business process not trying to optimize any one of them you have to optimize all of them People say, "Oh, we got this great assessment test." Too bad the best people don't take it. Who cares? If it's the best assessment test. That's called suboptimization. You've got to optimize the system, not the process. And I think that's where HR has been totally misguided mm. over the last forty years.
1: So true. The first thing that comes to mind is if you are recruiting for very hard to fill roles, does this sort of process apply to your hourly? and your low skill, no skill, hourly, seasonal workers? Or is this really something that needs to be only working at the top of the house, like leadership roles?
2: It's truly designed for a professional staff person and above. So two to three years and above. So if you need an engineer, a top engineer with two to three years, what does that person need to do? So it works perfectly for that. Got it. Perfectly for rank and file positions, I'm going to say yes with modification. So I'll give you a story. Okay. I was with a big insurance company that had 5,000 people in a call center taking inbound, and this is one of the biggest yeah. insurance companies in the world. Yeah. And I was sitting there in California at their local headquarters, but we had all of the people who ran in these call centers in the same room. And the HR department says, we're going to implement performance-based hire. And the team says, we don't need hiring system. And you could just see the conflict. But the company had already signed a huge contract with us at the time. And the HRVP was there. It was a big deal. And then the line manager, we're not going to do it. Obviously, everyone was a little bit frightened by that. And the guy said, we only have 10% failure rate. That was what they said. Now, 5,000 people, they probably hired 1,500 a year, 10%. So I then said, trying to salvage a deal here, because it was pretty critical. Right. I said, You're telling me that 90% of the people are all great, or is there a difference between the top third of the 90% and the bottom third? Oh, there's a real difference between the top third and the bottom third. I said, Mm. how much? Oh, probably 50 to 100% productivity. I said, so what if we could show you how to just hire the top third? And they said, this is great. So I said, let's just benchmark what the top third do differently than the bottom third. And we'll set up a program to do that. So that's what we did. There was five or six big differences. The biggest one, obviously, productivity was one, but even more important is that the 100% attendance. That was the big one. It was productive and learning the system quickly, but there was variables. Then we said, okay, how are we going to recruit? And they said, well, it's just an average job. I said, what do you mean it's just an average job? Think about your top third people. Let's write down the top third people and then yeah. put them on a board, a whiteboard. I said, what do they do differently than everyone else? Why do they like the job? So we came up with five or six things of why they like the job. Then we use that as the advertising piece. So the answer is it doesn't work as effectively for rank and file. But if you think about it from the human nature standpoint and a human perspective of what do the best people do differently, and why do they like the job? It works exactly the same. It just naturally leads me to what you talked about. And that is being a
1: great interview, asking great interview questions. Can you
2: give us maybe top two questions to assess? That's all you need to ask is two questions. Really? So now I'll go back to, you might've been there, Shirley, but probably not. I tell stories you can tell, Serge. I don't <laughs> love, it. love it. Love <laughs> it. Keep going. Uh, I had written my first book, Higher With Your Head, in 1997. And the fourth edition just came out last year. So that's a semi plug. Uh, but I had written the first book. So this is around 1999. The first big recruiting event of all time took place at the Javits Center in New York City. And somehow, because I wrote the book, somebody asked me to be a speaker there. And I had never spoken to 1,800 people. And I was very nervous. Nervous was an understatement. I didn't want to do it. I freaked out. And My son was going to film school at the time, and I called him the night before. He said, I can't do this, Keith. I'm so scared. He said, why don't you do this? Why don't you go out on the stage early and just get nervous right away? And he said, then ask the audience a question that will put the pressure on them rather than you. So this was something he learned as a director. So I am on a stage and there's this Javits Center. It's huge convention hall. And I'm sweating. Nobody's there. I'm in a room at eight o'clock in the morning, scared. (laughs) and Nobody's there. So then I come up there. He said, before I get into it, I want to just ask you a question. I want you to think about the greatest thing you've ever accomplished in your whole career, because I'm going to interview everybody in the room right now, based on that question. Think about it. You got 30 seconds to write it down. And I put a chair up on the table. and I said, I I'm going to ask you a series of questions around that. So this is the first of all questions. I think about the best thing you've ever done in your entire career. You've got 15 minutes to tell me about it, but I'll guide you along. And a lot of the book gets into this. Tell me when it happened. Why were you chosen? What skills did you use? Did you volunteer for it? Or you were assigned for it. If you volunteered, why did you volunteer? If you were assigned, why did someone assign you? Who was on the team with you? What did you do with that team? How did you change the direction of the team? Walk me through the biggest problem you solved. Walk me through the biggest decision you had to make. So it's a whole series of fact-finding questions around that to paint a 15-minute word picture of that accomplishment. So that's really the core question. But remember, before I took the assignment, I asked people, tell me what work needs to be done. Oh, you got to build a team. Okay. So then I modify that question slightly, and I ask that same exact question for each of the performance objectives I took during the intake meeting. Oh, you've got to turn around the factory. Walk me through you've turned around the factory. Oh, you've upgraded the procurement system. Walk me through you've done that. And you really do detailed fact-finding around all the major accomplishments, and then you look at that trend of performance over time, and you have a great sense that this candidate's a player or not. That's Absolutely. the first question. Okay. And then the second question is, this is not a hypothetical, it's a real problem. I said, hey, Serge, one of the big problems we have here is we've got to get this new system up and running within six months, and normally it would take nine months. If you were to get this job, how would you go about doing it? So the second question is a realistic job problem and getting into a give and take discussion. You're not really interested in the answer. You're interested in the thinking process of how that candidate would figure out and walk through the problem. And I've discovered this. It doesn't matter if someone's an entry-level person in a call center or the president of the company or someone who understands a job, understands how they're going to solve the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. It's how they're going to get it. Well, I would need to know this. I'd have to talk to these people. I'd have to figure out this. I'd put this pack together with this once I learn that. So it's a process of thinking about problem solving, not the solution itself. That's the other question. So if you ask me too, it's digging into accomplishments related to the job, then getting to a give and take conversation around a realistic problem the person would have. You do those two things, you got a pretty good sense if you got the right candidate. But without knowing the job description, you have nothing. And that's why the research says behavioral interviewing doesn't work unless you do a detailed job analysis. But people somehow forget that part.
1: Well, if I may, and this is maybe a little bold of me to say, Lou, but I think people have gotten lazy because HR wrote a job description where the purpose of that document is how do we assign compensation? It has become like the anchor HR document. Because the leader has already been dragged through a torturous process with HR to build the job description for one purpose. It's like, please, just use the job description. Am I right, Lou? Is it just laziness?
2: I think it's more profound than that. Let's be real frank. There's a book that came out by Gallup, 1997, First Break All the Rules, What the World's Greatest Managers Do Differently. They came up with the Q12, Gallup's Q12 that drives satisfaction. Number one is clarify expectations up front good managers do that. I didn't do it because I read the book. I just asked, man, what does this person need to do to be successful? I did it because I had to convince a candidate and assess the candidate if he or she could do that work. Now, I've been criticized from HR. They said, oh, you can't do that. It's illegal. I talked to the number one labor attorney in the country, David Goldstein out of Littler Mendelssohn, and said, is this illegal? He wrote a white paper in my last four books. He said, it's the best way to open the pool. It's not illegal to write job descriptions, listing skills, and experience and competencies, but it's useless. He said, define the work that a person needs to do. If they can do that work, that's perfectly objective criteria. Then you also open the talent pool to everybody. Since managers have to do the work anyway, you're 100% right. Not only managers are lazy, HR is lazy. Let's just use this one we wrote 23 years ago and let's do it. But the best people don't want to take ill-defined lateral transfers. That's where you have to optimize the system. Yeah. Well, The system is, if you've got a job description that offers ill-defined lateral transfers, who are you going to attract? <laughs> not the best people. you going to attract people who are okay with accepting an ill-defined lateral transfer. And the best people aren't. So you basically said, okay, we're hiring a system to fill jobs, not to hire the best people. They would never say that, but that's the truth. Just a uh, elongation to your comment, Shelly. So
0: Lou, you nailed it. And I think one of the biggest challenges talent acquisition people have, or HR people, depending on the organization, is dealing with the hiring manager. You mentioned a couple of things there that really hit it on the head. And this is a conversation that I've had with hiring managers. They want someone doing exactly the same job at a different company and potentially making exactly the same money because we're not paying that much more so trying to correlate that to the hiring manager that this doesn't make any sense someone will not come to your job unless they're extremely unhappy where they are right now or there's something compelling you're paying a lot more it's kind of a fool's errand that a lot of talent acquisition people go through is to discuss with hiring managers what the proper process should be when it comes to interviewing and selection, because we come across this all the time. There's like, no, I have my gut questions that are usually very stupid. I'll be completely (laughs) frank. And they need to ask those questions instead of going into a process that is judging candidates at exactly the same level. I guess my question to you here is, how do we get hiring managers on board to have a more systemized approach to actually interviewing and hiring instead of relying on our gut, which we know is wrong the majority of the time? You
2: yeah, know, well, I think here's the issue. So when I tell company leaders and people ask me what companies have actually implemented performance-based hiring, and there's few, but there are some, but usually it's because in a mid-sized company, let's say 200 to 1,000 people, I have an opportunity to talk to the CEO. And I say there's only two things you have to do to implement the process, which gets to your question, Serge. Number one is define the work as a series of performance objectives, not a list of skills and experiences, and don't accept a rec unless that happens. So that forces the hiring manager hand. The other part is you have to have a scorecard that assesses a candidate's ability and motivation to do that work, and we have a formal scorecard and we have a way to do it. If you put those two bookends. The managers will do it and the assessment will be proper, even though they'll mess it up until they learn how to do it. I have a different perspective because my background is so unusual. I have been a manufacturing engineer. I have been running a manufacturing company. I was a director of financial planning for a mid-sized company. I have been a cost accounting manager and a controller. I had a lot of jobs in 10 years. Weirdly enough, people let me do it. So I had a lot of credibility with hiring managers. But so I'm now going to go back to another story. I remember I had one assignment when the internet dot com boom 20 years ago was huge. The person I had worked with, the chairman of this mid sized company, only a hundred, $200 million company, and he was hiring a VP marketing and board guy told me, he says, Lou, the president doesn't know what he's looking for. Would you prepare a performance based job description? So I went and met the fellow. And he was, oh, what are you here? I don't want to see you. Have you ever done searches for these kind of people? And he was really lambasting me. And he said, you're terrible. Why am I here? I don't want to talk to you. You don't know this job. I want someone with 15 years experience from Stanford, a Caltech undergraduate degree, 10 years experience doing this and this. He was yelling, almost didn't want me in a room. And I finally said, Lee, hold on one second, one second. I said, you've hired somebody, whether it's me or somebody else doing the search, you've hired someone, and the whole board, a year from now, says, this person's great hire. What has this person really accomplished over the year where everybody agrees that the person's great? Now, this is like 30 minutes into it. I'm being berated for 30 minutes. He said, you finally asked a good question. I didn't come back and say it was the first time you let me talk, but that was a different issue. So he said this. He said, the guy has to put together. And he paused. He said, that's a real good question. I want the person to put a three-year product roadmap together that overlays where the internet's going, where the infrastructure is going, and looking at our technology and our engineering. We've got 100 engineers. I can't add many more over the next three years, but really optimizes our product and where we're going in the internet. And that's what a three-year product roadmap would do. So I just asked this question. I said, if I could find someone who could do that work, but didn't have the MBA from Stanford, didn't have the... Caltech engineering degree, but could do that work. Obviously, I have some technical skills and business skills to do it, but it might not have that exact pedigree. Would you at least talk to the person? His response still rings true today. He said, absolutely. If you can do the work, I'm happy to talk to him. And that was the difference maker. Yeah, I had to have the manager take these ideas of 10 years of this, looks like this, into some measurable component. And that was the key. And it, it was hard for me to get that person to do it, but I finally got him to do it. We placed every single executive in that company for the next five years with that idea. It was the idea of converting a having to a doing. Was well, got to have three years of this. And I said, what does that look like on the job? It's got to be a great communicator. What does that look like on the job? Well, was has got to make presentations to the management team every quarter. Fine, I'll find somebody who can do that. So that takes away the subjective criteria of what does success look like into some meaningful metric. And that's the difference maker. It's better if you can institutionalize it with the CEO, but every single recruiter can do that every single time in talking with a hiring manager.
0: Lou, I wish I had met you 20 years ago. (laughs) I wasted like the first 10 years of my career in recruitment doing it the wrong way until I
2: figured it out. Still People stumble upon it. I kind of had an, an attitude in my mind. You can tell I'm a manufacturing guy from New York. I just bulldozed my way in and people trusted me.
1: Yeah. Do you know, Lou, I wish I had that level of hiring leaders, because here's what I find. I've been involved in well over 10,000 hires in my career. Mm. I've been at this since 1994. And when I am trying to extract from them, what do they mean by a great communicator? Here is the absolute killer irony. They can't tell me. They don't know. They've never been asked and they've never really thought about it. To have a performance-based hiring system and have the organization taught to think through these things, because it's important. But in my experience, <laughs> hiring managers can't tell me.
2: Well, I think you can then lead the horse to water. I said yeah. So I would say surge is the hiring. Hey, surge. who is these people going to be working with regularly? In what way will they have to influence these people or understand these people? So if you know what good yeah. communication skills are and how they're used on the job, is understanding product requirements, being mm-hmm. able to give direction or take direction to coach or not coach to present information. So if you know what the person's gonna do, you know how communications are used for that job. So you just lead the horse to water and you say, so if I find someone who can do this, you wouldn't even ask them what good communication skills are. You tell them, this is what I'm seeing as good communication skills. <laughs> I'm pretty direct at this stuff, as you can imagine. Well, yes, you are
1: fantastic uh-huh. at it, Lou, and that's what makes you famous is yeah, right. teaching But I also us,
2: I've been kicked out of a lot of rooms so too <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs>
1: Well teaching Here's us as talent acquisition how to start with that one big question and keep going asking intelligent questions what I heard you saying is talk more about that tell me more about that so who else was involved like it, it is that natural curiosity applied to a process that will lead you to determine if someone has done the work
2: Well, I call it the Sherlock Holmes deductive interviewing technique. I'm not the best technical interviewer. Let's say a candidate is a little quiet and introverted. And interpersonal skills, I wouldn't think that person's that interpersonal. So who cares? It's not my judgment. But if I ask the candidate, what kind of teams you've been on? Who was on those teams? What role did you play on those teams? Walk me through some examples. What happened as a result of that? Oh, the VP marketing asked me to be on another team. Well, whether I like the person or not, if somebody else did this, it's what I call, it's deductive evidence. The peers that person worked with already know if that person's any good. I wrote an article just this week on this. I was starting out as a recruiter, and I had a good candidate for an engineering management spot walk in. and As I'm walking into my office with him, my secretary, came, Lulu, Lou, so, so and such is on the phone. And she knew I was waiting for this call. It was a big client, had multiple searches. So I had to tell the candidate I couldn't interview him then. So I walked him back. He was aggravated, and rightly so. So I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you just write down all the recognition you've received in high school and college at work, anything you've received, pat in the back, letter, promotion, just write it on a piece of paper. And as soon as I'm done with this call, we'll talk through it. Well, it turned out this guy had some recognition, two honor societies. His manager promoted him into stretch jobs right after he started. So it was this list of things the person had pats on the back, letters of commendation. And I realized that the peers know if this person's any good. I don't have to make that judgment. I just got to peel the onion to find out what other people thought of the person. If you're good, you've been assigned a stretch project. If you're average, you're assigned average projects. If you're a really good teammate, Teammates ask you to be on the team. They ask you to coach and for advice and counsel. So I'm just looking for that stuff. I'm not trying to be this behavioral, insightful person in PhD in psychology. No, I just say if your boss thinks you're good and you've been promoted three times and your boss's boss hired you in another job at another company, you're a pretty good person. So I just use that evidence to present to my clients why this is a good candidate. And it works 100% of the time hundred percent of the time people complain. well, I don't have any good evidence. Well, you're probably not very good. They don't like that answer, but I don't say that. Well, maybe I do sometimes, but, <laughs> but it's really just seeking out evidence. If you're good, you've been on good projects you get promoted more rapidly. You get a bigger bonus. You have more clients. People call you back to do other stuff. So I'm just looking for that kind of stuff and then put it together in a story of why this candidate's appropriate for the job. Because I've also taken an assignment where I really know the work. And if there's a recruiter, you're talking to a candidate, you don't know the work, you're just a gatekeeper and they tune you out. So you have no credibility with the candidate or the hiring manager if you don't know the work. Well, I think what happens a lot, and I think
0: you nailed it a couple of times there is most recruiters that are coming into the industry or even have been doing recruitment for a long time, don't even do intake meetings. They don't ask these questions. They're sent a job description and they start working on it. You lose all credibility with hiring managers and your candidates. I think you nailed it. you just a paper pushing, right? I do want to go into more current topics of what is going on in talent acquisition and in the world of work right now. One of the things that we keep hearing, I think we've talked a lot about in the podcast, is no one wants to work anymore. And the facts are a little bit different here in Canada. And from what I'm reading in the US, what's your take on where all the workers are? Where are they?
2: Well, let me make the general statement. Okay. Darwin's theory of evolution didn't change recently. So part of it is human nature is the same as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Given the right job, the right circumstances, people will work and enjoy it. So now you make the conclusion why would that not be the case? Well, I'm going to say the case is because we've cheapened work in this world. And I'm saying it's the cause of job boards. This is what I said to Shelly earlier. I've been kicked out of meetings. I got kicked out of a meeting with a major job because I said, don't post jobs. (laughs) Make it hard to apply to a job and then guarantee that the person, if they apply to the job, they'll actually get interviewed. No, no, we want to sell job boards. So you look at all the job boards. They want you to quit because they make money selling job postings. They don't make money for making placements. They make money for posting and getting candidates to turn. Today on LinkedIn, I get job postings every day apply to this job, apply to that job. Obviously not qualified for anything, but that's neither here nor there. So the point is we've cheapened work. When I started work, 1968 was my first real job as an engineer. It was hard to change jobs. Up till 1995, it was hard to change jobs. You got aggravated. You had to really work hard to look for another job, put a resume together, send it in on the mail and wait. And by that time, your short-term aggravation was kind of dissipated. When you left, it was almost a strategic decision and it took work to change jobs. Once job boards came in, it was easy to change. I just found another job. I got aggravated this afternoon. If you're any good, you'll get interviews in the next couple of days and you could be out in two to three weeks. So we've cheapened work and the job boards make money by posting jobs, not by making you stay two to three or four years. So I think the environment has changed where the system has made work cheaper. So now you have to have a recruiter to intervene and say, no, this is a great career move. So when I bring in a candidate, I tell him, no, if we make you an offer, three days before I make you an offer, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you really want this job? Forget the money. Do you want this job? And you've got to tell me why you want the job. You've got to define the work you're going to be doing, why you think that's career motivating, and why you think this is a place you can stay two to three years and have a great career move. If you can't do that, if you can't say that, we're not going to make you the offer. That's a lot of work on our part and your part to get that information. And my client knows they're going to give you that information. So I'm already setting the stage that this is a long-term career move. And we've made a lot of placements that way. But most recruiters are in it for the hustle. Oh, I got to make a placement. Got to make a placement. They don't care. They just hire for the start date. So it's always about what you get on the start date, not about the work you're doing. So I think the situation, surge has created what appears to be nobody wants to work. Well, I don't think that's true. I think they don't want to work because the world of work and how to change jobs is cheap and everything is very transactional where the real world of work is much more focused on career growth and career development. And those things still exist, but you got to work hard to find them and you won't find them on job boards.
0: I think that's an interesting perspective, even as someone that works at a job board. I don't disagree with any of those statements in that sense. But where I'm really curious, though, yes, job boards have been around since 1995?
2: 92, 93. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's around when ninety two. Builder and Monster came out.
0: But we have never seen a labor market like we're seeing right now, where literally companies cannot hire because the demographic of people in the workforce have disappeared in the last two to three years. Here in Canada, we know a lot of boomers did retire during the pandemic. And I think it's a similar story in the U.S. But what has changed in the last three years? Because job boards have been around for like 30 years. Is there anything else that's changed
2: Well, I think there's no question, and what you've said there is a true statement. The supply of talent is not sufficient to handle the demand for talent for a variety of reasons. Jobs have changed more rapidly than the skills. To learn a new skill takes years. To change a job takes days or weeks. So you've got this time delay that's really impacted. I certainly can't answer the question globally for everybody, but I can certainly answer the question for a specific group of people. If the demand for talent exceeds the supply, you can't use a process to weed out people. You have to use a process to attract them in, which means you can't use the traditional job posting. But I just saw something It was on LinkedIn last week, and it was Kohler, the company that makes plumbing faucets, toilet bowls, sinks. It's a cool company. Great design. But it was the VP of HR just took on a job. He said, we're looking for a bunch of HR leaders, anywhere from staff level to senior managers. If you think you've got the skills, let's set up a conversation. And that's all it said. But think about that. was not a job posting. You can't get it to money. Hey, let's talk about you to this open job, and we'll see if we have one that fits. Hey, we thought we needed a senior director, but you're a manager. So maybe we'll change the job a little bit to meet that criteria. So it's kind of a different approach is it's one posting to handle multiple jobs. So let's find people that we can fit into that criteria. We might have to add some training programs, might have to add some yep. development programs, but we've offered some flexibility. It's not one job, round hole in a round peg. We're going to be open-minded. We have a lot of jobs to fill. Maybe it's two jobs rather than one job, but it's this mindset of, hey, let's attract people in with multiple jobs and we'll figure out the roles if they make sense. Much more flexible approach to hiring. Don't focus on weeding out the week for one job. Let's figure out how to attract the best people for multiple jobs and work it that way as a strategic problem.
0: What's your take on untapped labor pools? You mentioned at the start where we talk about university, there's elitism when it comes to different schools, but what about the markets of people that haven't graduated from university? How about the ones that have a criminal record? Like,
2: like what do you think of those talent pools? Well, I'm not going to get into the politics of certain issues, but I will make this general statement by focusing on performance criteria. All I care about is can I do that work? If you've got to design a circuit in six months to do accomplish, or a piece of software to accomplish certain yep. tasks, you have to be able to do that work. It'd be great if that was a stretch job for you because you saw it as a career move. So now the issue is how do you get a candidate interested in that? I had a podcast this morning with a European website called Jobs for Humanity. And I said, you know, if you're a candidate, don't apply to a job because you're not going to get one unless you're perfect. And nobody here on this call is perfect. So don't apply even if you are perfect, because it's a better way to get it. Use that job posting as a lead into the back door. And you might want to prepare a non-resume. Hey, if somebody asks you to develop a piece of software, why don't you take a video of a piece of software you did and wrap it around some kind of nice little letter and send it off to a hiring manager at that company, even if it's not the hiring manager for that job, because that hiring manager will look at that little video and that little thing you did and say, this is pretty cool. That person might hire you, but they'll also refer you to the person who's actually doing the work because they already know that person. Then you're at the top of the list with a non-resume. So the idea is I tell candidates, you can't use the job posting system because it's useless. You want a lateral job that they'll define and be unhappy three months from now and add to the great resignation, fine. But you're not gonna get a job anyway. One in a hundred to one in 200 people get jobs. So I'm pretty much anti-job boards, as you can tell. That's not to say that if the person can do the work, They don't deserve the job, but how do you get interviewed as a marketing approach as opposed to a assessment approach? So I don't know if that's really the answer to your question, Serge, but I hope I confused you enough that you'll buy it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I feel enlightened after this conversation. Your insights have been fascinating to me. I, I want to leave it on one last question. There's been so many different types of innovations. What do you see is going to be like a major disruptor in HR and talent acquisition in the next couple of years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years? Do you see something coming that's nope, going to sad to say,
2: I'm a cynic. And I had this picture drawn in 1998. And for those listening to the podcast, it was a contention at that time with applicant tracking systems and job boards and companies building in-house recruiting teams, the war for talent would be won. I said, it absolutely won't be one we're posting boring jobs that are nothing more than ill-defined lateral transfers. We've got a cumbersome website. It's hard to find the jobs. You have people making judgments about people that have no training to make these judgments. We have weak recruiters who can't define the work. It's a long application process and the best people get picked up early and the job postings themselves are utterly boring. The only differentiator is the logo that you have. That's not a great attraction system. And I had a meeting. I don't know if you've had Kevin Wheeler on your talk here. You've had John Sullivan on your talk I was on the stage with John Sullivan 10 years ago at an ERE conference, and somebody asked the same question you just asked, the Serge, what's the future of hiring? And they all made these pronouncements, and I said, that's a bunch of bull. Nothing's going to change. Being more efficient doing something stupid doesn't make you better. It makes you stupider. So my judgment was that nothing's going to change. And I described this bucket I had of a waste of money. We've spent $500 billion in the last 25 years on HR tech and job postings, and nothing has changed at all in that timeframe. And unless we start rethinking how the process is done, nothing's going to change in the future. They say, well, we got all these assessment tests. We got AI. I said, yeah, but the database you're using is people to apply, and the best people don't apply. So using that database is a silly database to define it. You're just trying to make an application process based on job boards more efficient. And that's not where the best people find jobs. you got to blow it up and start over. So until they blow it up and start over, I'm sorry to say I'm going to be a cynic like I was 10 years ago and been kicked out of meetings for saying it. Nothing's going to change. People are going to spend another $500 billion. And 10 years from now, I probably won't be on a podcast. But People will say, James, why do we have all these problems? What's the next big thing? And I don't say there isn't going to be a next big thing until we start over from scratch.
0: I have to share this graphic because the graphic says 1998. It describes exactly the challenge we're having here in 2022. So, Lou, I, I have to admit, I have become a Lou Adler fan. I'm not at the level of Shelley yet, but I'm getting there. <laughs> well. Everyone listening to this podcast They have to read your books. Lou, please plug the books that you have out right now.
2: Well, I think the book Hire With Your Head is the one to read. It's in the fourth edition. It came out in the end of last year, Hire With Your Head. You can find it on Amazon. If you go to hirewithyourhead.com, if you buy the book, I also have a book club where every month we discuss a chapter in the book. I have another book that came out about seven or eight years ago called The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. That would have been the fourth edition of Hire With Your Head, but the publisher, Wiley, didn't want to have a book to two different audiences. The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired discusses that, but also gives advice to candidates to what to do if they don't feel they're being assessed properly. Go to hirewithyourhead.com, find the book, join it, buy it, read it, and hopefully change the world one hire at a time.
0: One hire at a time. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, What's the easiest way?
2: LinkedIn? They can't, no. I'm trying to retire. As I said, I really do enjoy these conversations. I haven't been out in two and a half years. When I, mean, I sneak out of the house and my wife says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm not telling you. No, if you go to hirewithyourhead.com, you'll see all the contact information, how to join, how to reach out to us. So that's really a good place to go. So I'm assuming we're not going to see
0: you at HR Tech in Vegas.
2: No, I've been kicked out of that one. Literally, I've been kicked out. They won't let me there. People say, what are your adjectives? frank, outspoken, and not afraid to speak my mind.
0: Well, Lou, this has been an absolute pleasure. And you are right. You definitely speak your mind. And we love that. So thank you so much for coming Mm -hmm. on the show.
2: Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Shelly. I hope you still follow me even after this. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lou. It was
1: wonderful to see you again.
2: How much do you understand